thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we continue our Bible study with chapter 49 and uh, chapter 50 of the book of Revelation. We're going to bring both of Genesis. Genesis. Thank you. Making sure somebody's awake. (laughs) Not just kidding. Of the book of Genesis. And hopefully we'll bring you to a close tonight. Last um, week we started looking at chapter 49, which is the testament of Jacob to all his uh, children, and we saw how in that testament there are indeed blessings, but there are curses. Starting with Reuben, the firstborn, who was rebuked, to whom pre- preeminence was not given, and historically Reuben did not receive this preeminence. Following by uh, Simeon and Levi, who were brothers and who were violent, and their anger was cursed. And in Jacob's mind, they would then be um, um, scattered amongst the tribes. And and this is exactly what happened to them, both of them. Then Judah, who does receive preeminence, and he receives the praise of his father. And we know why. We know that at one point, Judah did indeed act as a firstborn. He was willing to sacrifice his life in order to save his uh, brother Benjamin. And then we saw that um, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali were reversed. And, uh, I'm sorry, Zebulun and um, Issachar was reversed. And the reason is because one actually does have preeminence over the other. We talked about Dan, and we said there were judges coming from Dan, the most famous one being Samson. Uh, but that uh, there is also a tradition that seems to indicate that the Antichrist will come from the tribe of Dan because of the language related to the serpent. Dan shall be a serpent in a way, a viper by the path. And the prayer, I wait for thy salvation, O Lord. Then there were a couple of words about uh, Gad and Asher and Naphtali. And then we came down to um, Joseph, which obviously receives a very long blessing. And this is what we're going to go through. And um, then we'll, we'll talk about Benjamin. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers fiercely attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him sorely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, by the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by God Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, Blessings of the deep that couches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. 
The blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of the eternal mountains, the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was separate from his brothers. So, uh, as you can see, Jacob is being very eloquent here with his blessings on, on Joseph. And the, um, so there seems to be in the blessing four themes that are directed to Joseph. The attributes of the tribes, a historical illusion, a divine protection, and blessings of prosperity. So the attributes of the tribes, meaning things that don't just apply to Joseph himself, but to his whole tribe moving forward. Historical allusion to what will happen in, uh, in the future. The calling upon divine protection for this tribe and the blessings of prosperity. This is very, very important because, well, I'll tell you in a minute why it's really important. Let me just keep going linearly before I, I, I jump there. So, the blessing of Moses similarly uses the name Joseph for the two tribes. Remember, in the tribes of Israel, you had Manasseh and Ephraim. Joseph, as such, was not mentioned because he received a double portion. He had two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. But usually, the, the name of Joseph will be used to both of them and by extension to all of Israel. And as I said, so sometimes Joseph is used for the two tribes, but more often than not, Joseph is really used for the entire kingdom. That tells you the preeminence he received. So, Joseph is a fruitful, is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by spring. An interesting thing is that in a Jewish translation, what they will use is not a fruitful bow, but a wild ass. Right? They speak of him as a wild ass, a wild ass by spring. And the reason why it's important is because the Hebrew ben porat, which is wild ass, is probably a wordplay on Ephraim. Because of the two, Ephraim has the preeminence, which is the more, he's basically the more, more important of the two tribes. So why would he use the word wild ass in a specific instance? Because... It might be uh, an allusion to the freedom and independence of the Joseph tribes, which occupied an area that had previously been sparsely populated, as will be indicated in Joshua 17, verse 14 to 18. The spring, the hillside, uh, may well be wordplay concealing a reference to the Ishmaelites who sold Joseph to Egypt. And we don't have to get too much into this right now. This is sort of um, tangential to our study. But they also have references to hostile archers. And remember, Ishmael was a bowman. So what happened is that the, 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 um, the territory of Joseph is going to be really close to that of the Ishmaelites. And even though in the beginning there may be some nice or, or a cordial relationship between the two, afterwards, and we had made reference to that earlier in our study, it will get really hostile. And so the war will happen between them. And the reason why this is important is because in the text, the archers fiercely attacked him, shot at him. If you, speak, if you think of the man Joseph, there is no reference whatsoever of him being attacked by archers. Unless you would want to use archer as a symbolic representation of those who attacked him. Perhaps the fact that the Midianite sold him to the Ishmaelite. You might look at it this way, but it's... Um, 
um, but it's but it's really uh, a, um, a speculation. There is no basis for for us to think that when Jacob speaks this way, he's he's trying to say that the Ishmaelites attacked him sorely. By the way, one important thing that I forgot to mention last week. Throughout this whole text, Jacob does not make allusion or reference to the fact that his brothers tried to kill him. And the only logical explanation is that Joseph never told him. There are references made to what Simeon and Levi did, what uh, Reuben did. So every instance of an evil act that was done by the brothers that Jacob knows of is recalled here. So one would logically think that he would have recalled the fact that all the brothers have tried to kill and then sell their own. Yet he makes no reference of it, including Judah. So you can see the integrity and the love of this man, Joseph, who did not tell his father, who hid and protected his brothers. Back to what I was saying. That's why we think that there is a, a, um, an indication that, that the attack comes from the Ishmaelites, who will indeed attack Israel in that area. But he, meaning Joseph, will prevail. Now, we, we move on to this blessing that he's going to, to um, impart upon him. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. So, again, one more time, these are not mere expressions that the ancient use when referring to the action of God. They mean what they say. In the mind of Jacob, when he says, his hands were made agile. He means his hands were made agile. Right? The, the distancing that we experience today between God's will and our own is not, is not uh, um, the way the patriarchs looked at their life in regards to the work of the Almighty. They saw, they saw them going hand in hand. Right? And that's very important to note, and we have to, we have to realize that we need to go back to this kind of view, to this kind of vision, in order for us to understand the, the workings of God in our own time, in our own lives. By the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, the first time these titles are given to the Lord. By the name of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. So, uh, very interesting that he, Jacob, calls God the shepherd. God has not told Jacob, I'm the shepherd. These are titles, and neither did God say to Jacob, I am your rock. These are titles that Jacob confers upon God, and God will use them. So, if you fast forward to the, to the Gospels, when Jesus in the Gospel of St. John says, I am the shepherd, now you, I hope, you understand the full import of this word. Jesus was not being cute. 
And I told you my little pet peeve with the romantic picture of Jesus standing there with a little white cheap in his hand and he's got a big grin on his face. Right? The problem with that picture is that it detracts from the messianic and the divine attribute of the title shepherd. He doesn't mean I'm the nice guy. He doesn't mean I am connected with nature. He means I'm God. He is referring back to a title that Jacob gave God. So when Jesus says, I am, I am the shepherd, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are seething. They understand the divine attribute. Yeah? That's important. And obviously the rock. The word rock of Israel is a very important title. Um, probably he used the Hebrew word sur for rock. In the entire history of Israel, there are many names used that Israelites gave to their children. So, Yeshu was a common name. Right? Yeshu was a common name. God saves. Right? But there is one name that was used only once as a reference. Only once as a reference. And that is the name Sur. So, first let me refer back to what the, um, the for the Jewish commentary on this particular word, and then I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about it. So, the Hebrew, Evan, literally stone, is nowhere else used as a divine name or in association with God. The present translation is that of Sur, Rock, a frequent epithet of God expressing strength, permanence, protection. The reason why, obviously, he uses this word is in relation to the dream that he had. And when he woke up, he said, remember when he had that dream of the ladder? And woke up, what did he do? He took a rock, a stone, and poured oil on it, saying, truly God is here. So obviously, for Jacob, there is a con direct connection between the two. But that title, Sur, is given to God constantly in the Psalms. David constantly referred to God as my Lord, my God, my protection, right? my rock, my rock of salvation, over and over again. Abraham is referred to only in passing as rock. Sur, right? When Jesus saw Peter the first time in the Gospel of John, what did he say to him? You're Simon, your name shall be Kepha. He used the Aramaic. All right? He already gave him that name, Rock in Aramaic. So then in Matthew chapter 16, when he told him, you are Rock, why was it such a new revelation if he'd already called him Kepha before? Because he used the Hebrew, Sur. He imparted upon Peter a divine name that was never done before, or after, for that matter. That's why that name is so important. And the fact that he imparted it upon Peter is huge. You are, and I told you about the relationship between the name. You are, you know, uh, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. We talked about the Barjona bit last time. Remember that? A couple of times before. Because Bar-Jonah means son of Jonah, but his dad is not Jonah. 
is that is John, yeah? And therefore, when he called him son of Jonah, he really meant my son. Because Jesus himself, earlier in the chapter, referred to himself as Jonah. And so since Peter is his first son, meaning the first son of the covenant, what is he then? He's the firstborn. He receives the double portion. And then he's imparted upon him a divine title, which makes no sense unless you understand the whole notion of I am the vine, again, a divine title, and you are the branches. And that's how Peter can be rock, Jesus can be rock. And the image is used by St. Paul multiple times. The church is founded upon Jesus, yeah. But the, the church is also founded upon the apostles, yeah. Why? The vine and the branches. There is no distinction between the two. It's family. You praise somebody in a family, you praise the whole family. And the, one of the biggest difficulties the Protestants have, unfortunately, is the understanding of how a family functions. And it is no surprise that just as the Protestant denominations have been breaking apart to the, to the degree where we have today thousands, tens of thousands, I think the last count is 34,000 Protestant denominations, hmm? And that breakdown is accompanied by the breakdown in the family. Right? There is no understanding of the role of a mother. Therefore, they cannot understand Mary. There is no understanding of the role of the father. And they don't understand how if you praise one, you praise the other. And that's why when you're dealing with Protestants, you have to remember that the, their conception of the family has been, in many cases, so broken down that it's really difficult for you to convey Catholic concepts. The other interesting thing that came to mind recently is that um, one thing that really surprised me when I came here is that when you invite people over and they bring their food with them, if there are leftovers, they'll take it back. That was... Uh, who, how many of you were shocked by this? Am I the only one here? Yeah. So I'm not the only one, right? Very shocking for us. First of all, inviting people over and have them bring your, their food over is very shocking to begin with. But then for them to actually take it back is insulting, right? So it took me a while to, um, to kind of rationalize all of this. And then I've been told by my American friends who are not, don't, they don't, they don't share the same cultural background as I, that here food is not important. People like to get together, but food is not the most important thing. And it always bugged me. And about two days ago, I realized why. Because you see, it's not Catholic. That's the Protestant conception of getting together. Jesus used two fundamental things at the core of our faith. Marriage is one. The most important images consistently used about the covenant is marriage. And what is the other one? The Eucharist. Meal. Yeah? And when Jesus invites us to, to his table, it's not a potluck. Yeah? That's what bugged me. And the reason why it's important to be able to bring friends around the table and serve them food is because you're teaching them about the Eucharist. What does Eucharistos mean? Thanksgiving. How could anybody give Thanksgiving if they're bringing their own food and then taking the leftover back? Do you see how faith and cultural... Um, Cultural habits or tradition can be 
either supporting each other or could be standing back to back, ignoring each other. And we let these things slip by. And that's why even those small little things in our culture that are slipping away are hindering or being obstacles to the transmission of the faith. And that's why they become important. And this is when you're dealing with somebody who has none of those basics, the family, marriage, thanksgiving, uh, being received, being served food. It's going to be very difficult for them when you think about the entire psychology and you think about the entire um, cognitive faculty of man to absorb or accept or live the Catholic faith. Then verse 25, By the God of your Father who will help you, by God Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, Blessings of the deep that couches beneath. Blessings of the breast and, the, of, and of the womb. Well, blessings, you, you notice what he's doing essentially. It's a, it's a very short form of a beautiful prayer due to St. Patrick. Right? Um, now, I don't remember this prayer by heart, but it's this prayer that says essentially, God before me, God behind me, God above me, God beneath me, right? surrounded by God. This is what he's saying. The blessings above, the blessings beneath. Now, very interestingly, again, if you're in Babylon and you're listening to him talk, that's revolutionary. Because for him to speak about blessings of the deep that couches beneath, in the Babylonian concept, in the Babylonian mythology, in the Egyptian mythology, in the Greek mythology, in all of these mythologies, the deep is the kingdom of of death. Hades in the Greek, Mot among the Egyptians. There is no blessings there. So this notion, this presence of God everywhere, including the deep, is very unique. For us, again, we're used to this. But this is very unique to the Judeo-Christian understanding of, of, uh, of God. Okay, Blessings of the breasts and blessings of the womb. Um, obviously, this is a blessing about what? Children. Children. Life. Life. Right? In fact, there is one very old title to Our Lady, uh, at least in Lebanon and maybe other, other countries. I'm not very f- aware of all of it, so I'm not saying it's exclusive in Lebanon, but I've heard of it in Lebanon, and that is Our Lady of the Breasts. That's one of her titles. Why? Because... These ancient people, at least the Christians, had the proper understanding of the breasts as what? As life-giving. Right? We, have, we, <laughs> we live in a, in a society that has so dissociated sexuality from life that it had essentially turned the, this wonderful attribute of a woman as only a sexual organ, and that's it. Actually, the primary, um, the primary function of the breasts have become purely sexual, instead of actually being life-giving. Right. Going back to then the, the the blessings of Joseph. Then, so he gives them the blessings, and in twenty-six he insists the blessings of your father are mighty. This is really key for fathers and mothers today in a new covenant. You as fathers and mothers, your blessings is even mightier. Why? Because your blessings 
carry with it the new covenant. You're imparting essentially a share of the grace you received through marriage to your children. And that is the divine grace of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And because of the authority that you have over your children, you are able to impart this blessing upon them. Likewise, as parents, you can curse your children. And that curse is very powerful. And it will stand. It will stand. And I'm always reminded of the story in, um, in Father Amorth, if you haven't read it, it's called um, An Exorcist Tells a Story. He was referring to a case that he received, that he had of this man who came to see him. And he showed him the long list of operations he had on his legs. And they were never healed. And he told him that when he was little, his grandmother had cut all relationships with his father because she thought that he had a calling to the priesthood. But after discernment, the son determined, meaning the father of the man who came to see Father Amorth, determined that he had no calling to the priesthood. And as a result, his mother cut all relationship with him. So when he was married and he had, a, um, he, he had his uh, son born to him, he sent a picture of that son to his mother trying to, you know, help her accept the fact that he was now a father and a child. And she wrote back a letter, and she, on the letter she said, I curse the legs of this child, and you, you will die in the bed you were born in. And after she had passed away, he went back to his village for a visit, and while he was in his village, he fell ill. They brought him to his house and put him in the bed of his mother, which was the bed in which he was born, and he died that night. And the son had a whole series of operations on his legs, and they were never healed. So, you know, mothers, if you have a tendency to use words towards your sons, which are effectively curses, be careful. Where does that come from, that when you are angry, you actually curse them? Do you think it's um, coincidental? Why is it that when you are angry with your boys, let's say, and really angry, uh, you don't, I don't know, tell them to stuff their heads with broccoli? Why is it that it is not that kind of expression that comes to mind? Why is it that it is expression of cursing? And many of you here know exactly what I'm talking about. Because it is real. When St. Paul admonishes the Christians to bless and not curse, he did not mean bless and do not swear. He meant don't curse. Because you can so what happened is that because of this heresy called naturalism, where we only think that nature is the only thing that matters, and there are no real spiritual forces, we've forgotten a number of things. We've forgotten that we are spiritual beings. As such, we have a body, and we have a soul. Therefore, we have two kinds of power. We have physical power, you know, I could lift a watermelon in one hand, that sort of stuff. And we have spiritual power. 
You know very well that if a singer has a beautiful voice, let's say it's a 12-year-old girl or a boy, and they have these angelic voices, they'll grip you, won't they? I mean, what are they exactly doing physically? They're moving sound waves through the air. Why are you so gripped by them? Because they have a spiritual power through this voice of theirs. Hmm? You know so well that sometimes you can destroy someone with words. It could be, in fact, one of the form, the worst form of abuse. Or you can build someone up with words. I still remember one of my uh, godchildren. I think I have nine, right? I think I have nine. One more than my wife. Uh-huh. Um, she's this little girl, and I looked at her, and I told her, you have a beautiful smile, and don't let anybody, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Never forget it. You have a beautiful smile. She beeped. Now, I don't know what the implication is going to be for the rest of her life, but every time I see her, she has a twinkle in her eye. Right? She remembers. Okay, so we all know that, don't we? But for whatever reason, we think that our words cannot carry spiritual power. So therefore, what do we do? We don't bless our children, do we? We don't think that we have that power to bless. So we don't. We stopped. Likewise, children seeking to get married don't ask for their parents' blessing because they don't understand the power imparted in that blessing. So while in the Old Testament it used it, it, it was coming through these patriarchs, the men, in the New Testament, because of the royal priesthood in which we all share the powers of Christ, it comes through the father and the mother. Equally so. The blessings of both are very powerful. So bless your children regularly. Regularly. Makes a world of difference. And you children, seek the blessings of your parents. I'm always reminded of a bishop, very famous bishop, but I forgot the name right now, who, when he was made a bishop, went and saw his mother. And when she saw him, she knelt in front of him asking his blessing, which is extremely powerful. The blessing of a bishop is incredibly powerful. It's probably the most powerful force in the universe. And when he received her blessing, she stood up and he knelt and he asked for her blessing. While hers fundamentally is not as powerful as his, because when he blesses, it is Christ. It's that powerful. Yet he knows that in that gesture, he's pleasing the Lord immensely. And through the covenant of marriage, God can put forth tremendous blessings. The, the, the whole thing about the blessings of the eternal mountains, it's, um, it's not that, this is not to be taken in a literalist fashion. Remember, when we study scripture, we have to be careful not to take thing word for word in all cases. We, have to be, we, we need to discern. When Jesus said, this is amen, amen, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, we take it word for word because this is exactly what he meant. In other cases, we don't. And in this case, there is no such thing as the eternal mountains. What does he mean by that? He's basically saying the utmost reaches, the utmost bounds, 
that is desirable things, things that delight you, the, bound, the bounties. So it, the text can be translated as such. Mighty are the blessings of your father in addition to the blessings of the ancient mountains, the bounty of the eternal hills. That is, if you consider all the blessings that you had received physically, the blessings of your father are mightier. Then we, we have then the blessing of Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at eve, even the, dividing the spoil. And that blessing has to do with the following. Let's first read what St. Ephraim had to say. He says, this refers to Paul, who was a wolf to the wolves and snatched all souls away from the evil one. And in the evening, he will divide what he seizes. That is, at the end of the world, he will also rest with a reward greater than his labors. So you can see how the fathers looked at that in a spiritual sense. And I have a lot of quotation on a spiritual sense, but I don't have enough time to go all of them. Needless to say, there are quite a few dealing with the, um, the, the blessing that was given to, or the, the testament of Joseph. It's obvious that the picture of Benjamin is not at all the same that we've seen through the story of Joseph, because up to this point, Benjamin is what? He's the cute little one, right? The innocent one, the one who's done nothing to anybody, right? And he's the one that Joseph really loves, and he wants to see him, you know, cute, cuddly little brother. So what is that referring to? Well, it's mostly referring to the tribe itself, because the martial qualities of this small tribe are well attested. The first judge of Israel was Ehud, the Benjaminite, mentioned in Judges 3.15. And the army of the tribe took part in the war of Deborah. Uh, In a civil war, it is said to have mustered 26,000 men armed with swords and 700 uh, crack slingers, and to have fought back savagely against the combined forces of the other tribes. It provided skilled archers, men valiant in battles, and two of David's heroes came from this tribe, according to 2 Samuel 23, 27, and 29. And that has to do also with their territory, because they were, they were occupying a narrow strip of land separating the hill country of Judah, the south, from the hill country of Ephraim to the north. And it was strategically located that the important north-south central highway, uh, as well as the main east-west road leading to Transjordan, passed through it. As a result, the territory of Benjamin became an arena for wars. And it is no accident that Israel's opposition to Philistine oppression was centered in that tribe, and that Saul, first king of Israel and warrior liberator, came from Benjamin. So effectively, it, it reflects this historic situation um, and um, details the power of that, of that tribe. But nothing else is said about it other than this morning and evening. Uh, the con- contrasting terms uh, essentially are used to speak of a continual action. In other words, they don't sleep. They're always on the lookout. They're always uh, ready for battle. So now, the, the full 12 lists of the tribes, you know, everyone has been blessed. And then he essentially... He charged them again and said, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. And he's very specific. The field of, at Machpelah to the east of Memory in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with a field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. So he tells them this is what he, he wants them to, to, this is where they should be burying him. And then he drew his feet into the bed. Presumably he had been sitting with his feet over the side of the bed 
And he essentially, um, essentially, this is a question to say is that right after he gave, the, gave this whole blessing, he drew his last and he died. He was gathered to his people. And uh, that uh, form the end of the chapter. So it's closed with the death of, uh, of Jacob after giving this, these, this testament to his, to his uh, sons. And it is this testament that is going to um, structure the rest of the history of Israel all the way to the coming of the Lord. So now let's move on to Genesis chapter 50. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants... The physicians to embalm his father, so the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for so many are required for embalming. And Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the house of the Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, speak, I pray you, in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb, which I hewed out, of, uh, out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me go up, I pray you, and bury my father, and then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning to the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Forgive, I pray you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now we pray you, forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father, of the God your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he reassured them and comforted them. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house, and Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born upon Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the sons of Israel, saying, God will visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Three, struck, three sections in this last chapter. The first one is the burial of, jo- of uh, Jacob. The second one is the last discussion between the brothers and Joseph. And the third one is the death of Joseph.
And this is how Genesis closed. So, verse 1, Joseph flung himself upon his father's face. And, or again, Joseph fell on his father's face. This is a gesture is really unique. It is not mentioned usually in Scripture this way. And um, because typically they say that he fell on his neck, but that implied that somebody's standing. In this case, Jacob obviously is not standing, and that's why you see this expression used this way. And kissed him. Now, we take it uh, as something that is absolutely obvious, the kiss, but really, uh, the kiss as a farewell token uh, is mentioned in uh, Genesis 31, 28, 32, 1, and in Ruth chapter 1, verse 9 and 14. But other than that, it is not attested in parting from the dead. But the author of the book of Jubilees, in chapter 23, 5, similarly has Isaac kissing the dead Abraham, and it may be that the practice was wise widespread, though unrecorded. Um, so, again, those gestures are important for us to understand. And I had mentioned to you that um, one thing we should not do when someone dies in the family, especially if, let's say, it's a grandpa or grandma or someone who's important to children, is to keep children away from your funeral. Right? That's the worst thing you can do to the kids because they cannot bring it to closure. Bring the kids with you. Let them see the dead and let them kiss the dead goodbye. Okay? This kind of uh, hyper um, concern of the children is actually very bad for them because it teaches them to fear death. Because if they are being kept away, it must be it's really bad. And also, if you've seen children in front of the dead people, they're far better at dealing with it than grown-ups. They're much more natural than grown-ups. Right, so please, don't traumatize your children by keeping them away from a funeral. They need it just as much as everybody else. Okay, embalming. Now, very interesting. Why is that a problem, that he embalmed his father? Or why could that be a problem? It's an Egyptian tradition that is what? Okay, pagan ritual. More specifically, it's a ritual tied to the god Osiris. It's tied to one god, Osiris. So the embalming was not a, um, if you will, a, a, a natural thing. It was really a ritual. However, notice what Scripture says very specifically. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, it was not the priests or the, 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 the embalmers attached to the temple who did the job. It was the physicians, the servants of Joseph. Therefore, he did for purely natural reason. Because he saw in it a way to carry his father up to where he needed to take him. It was a long journey. You understand? Here's an example you know how some Protestant will tell you, well, how could you use you know, this Christmas tree? It's a pagan thing. Well, then you can tell them, why does a, uh, a bride dress in white when she's married? It's a pagan thing. It is another example, though, very specifically, of someone who takes a pagan tradition and uses it in its right context. He was not bearing him in Egypt. No, no, he was taking his father back up to Machpelah, 
which is in Canaanite land, and he was going to bury him up there. Joseph was buried in Egypt for other reasons, but not Jacob. Yeah, but the journey is long, and carrying a corpse with you on a long journey has also certain implications. So, again, you would see how Scripture is very subtle, but if you pay attention, if you understand the context, you see what he did and how he did it. He didn't go to the temple. He didn't ask the embalmers, the official embalmers to do the job. He asked his own physicians to, to do it. So, for instance, today, I need to attract your attention to a couple of things. Yoga. There's a part of yoga which is just fine. Relaxation, physical exercise, stretching, all that, good and well. You like to do it? Do it. There's nothing wrong with that. As soon as you start getting into meditation and transcendental stuff, right? you're on for transcendental pain. That stuff you do not get into. You're opening yourself to spirits who are not angels. Clear? Secondly, martial art. Studying martial art in a, what I would consider to be a purely secular context, all well and good. Studying martial art when there is a sensei and you must bow to him and give him allegiance, real bad. Don't do it. It's cultic. The sort of attachment you develop is absolutely that of a cult. Not good. You don't do it. Two examples of common, uh, very popular today, where you must exercise judgment. There are certain things in these, um, in these um, activities which are good in and of themselves. There are aspects of them which, you, which are incompatible with our faith, and you cannot get into them. All right. Forty days were required. And that's, the, that's attested through history. It, would, it took 40 days. So the whole process required taking some internal organs out and then immersing the body into embalming fluids for a long period of time and let it dry. And the reason why the Egyptians did it was because they were absolutely convinced that the, the, the body was necessary for the soul. So they already had an inkling of what we believe in. The resurrection of the body and the union of the body with the soul. Except that they thought they could do it themselves. Right? You can see how throughout history, throughout um, all cultures, the Holy Spirit is always at work to bring men to Christ and prepare them to receive the truth. So in every culture, there are bits and parts of the truth present. And what has to happen is, is for us to look at them and explain how they fit the larger context. Give the entire story. Verse 4. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the house of the Pharaoh. He didn't speak to Pharaoh directly. And the reason is because in, uh, among the, uh, the Egyptians, when you are mourning, you're unclean. The whole thing we're going to see in Exodus about being clean and unclean, as I told you before, was not something that just came down from heaven. It was part of the Egyptian way of life. They had certain things that were clean, and others were unclean. And that was one of them. Hence, he could not be in the presence of Pharaoh because he was unclean. And hence, he spoke to the house of the Pharaoh to tell Pharaoh that he needed to go and bury his father. And so, he told him, I pray you, 
Let me go bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, you can do that. So a, a, a huge procession went out from Egypt to Canaan. And that's indicative of the fact that even when, um, that, that all nations are going to give glory to God. Jacob was the patriarch, was the one whom, with whom God renewed the covenant. And you can see how the Gentiles, represented in the Egyptians here, go up with the believers to honor the one sent by God. It's an image of what is to happen in the Catholic Church. Right, where everyone joins to give glory to God. And that's the important. This is why it's so important for us to realize that even then, the Egyptians themselves gave glory to, to, to God on account of the work that Joseph did amongst them. And that's how we need to bring others to God. It's by our own work, our own life amongst them, our own witness. We can bring them to God. They will come, maybe not because of God, but because of us. And that's important. To give witness to the world this way. So they came to this place, the threshing floor of Atad. And let me tell you a little bit more about Atad. It's not an exact location that has been identified for the site. Um, but um, it, it, it seems to be... A, um, it must have been a city which belonged to the Egyptians in Canaan. Where many of the Canaanites who served the Egyptians, lived. So, effectively, what the Egyptians did, they went up with, um, with uh, Joseph to the threshing floor of their kingdom in Canaan. They went as far as they could without necessarily leaving Egypt. Right? And there, they mourned for seven days. And it used to be, it was very common back then, and when you mourned for seven days, you fasted. And the important thing for us is that uh, even though we do not fast when somebody mourns, or when somebody dies, we need to understand that those who are dead and who, through God's mercy, are in purgatory, depend completely and solely on our prayers to make their case before God. Hence, when someone dies... Resist, if someone dies in your family, resist the temptation of saying, oh, he's in a better place. That would be cruel towards this person because the more you understand your faith, the more you come to realize that the majority, the vast majority of all those who go to heaven go through purgatory. So you'd be better off assuming that this person is in purgatory and offering masses for the repose of his or her soul, and praying constantly, always rem re remembering this person and all your family members in your prayers so that God may release them from purgatory. Always keep in mind that little story that when Jacinta asked Our Lady, Jacinta was nine, year, nine years, nine or ten, nine or ten, asked Our Lady about a friend of hers who just died, and she asked Our Lady where she was, and Mary told her, She's in purgatory. We're talking about a girl who's 9 or 10, about the age of Jacinta. And she told her, and she will be there until the end of time. She was 9 or 10. This is the mother of God speaking with Jacinta. We make short shrift of heaven. So, 
one thing we need to understand, the dead need our help. Right? There are no zombies, and there are no... Um, um, uh, yeah, what do you call these things? Um, vampires, and there are no walking dead, and there are none of that. All of that is a scheme that is concocted by the world today because they're so afraid of death. Right? And I'm going to read to you a, co- a quote, actually, by, from St. John Chrysostom, which is really important. Here's what St. John Chrysostom has to say about this. The gates of the underworld were still not broken. For your part, however, dearly beloved, don't simply pass this by on hearing it, meaning hearing the fact that Joseph mourns for seven days. Instead, consider the time when it happened and absolve Joseph of all blame. St. John Chrysostom is asking his hearers, it was a homily that he gave, to absolve Joseph of all blame because he mourned for seven days. Why? I mean, the gates of the underworld were still not broken or the bonds of death loosed. Salvation has not come to the world. Therefore, whomever dies is really, truly awaiting salvation. Best possible case. But they they are in this part of uh, hell called limbo where they're awaiting the salvation and there's no way for them to go to heaven until Jesus comes and opens the gates. Hmm? So therefore, it is, he says, understandable for Joseph to weep because truly death was a tragedy back then. Nor was death yet called sleep. Hence, because they feared death, they acted this way. Today, on the contrary, thanks to the grace of God, since death has been turned into slumber and life's end into repose, and since there is great certitude of resurrection, we rejoice and exult at death like people moving from one life to another. Why do I say from one life to another? From a worse to a better, from a temporary to an eternal, from an earthly to a heavenly. That must be your outlook on death. Otherwise, you are not exercising the virtue of, more importantly, hope. You're not exercising the virtue of hope. So the church is very clear. Upon a death in your family, the period of mourning, meaning when you're dressed in black, is at most six months, after which it's over. So if you have in your family these old ladies who seem to be dressed in black continuously, all right, you got work to do. That's not what Christ intends for us. Oh, how many is we can be sad? It has nothing to do with being sad. You can be sad until you're not sad. No more than six months. So there's a difference between your action and your emotions. Now, if you come from a family where things were really traumatic and there were many wounds, you may need counseling to be able to get over the sadness. You might get depressed. Who knows? Right? That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your actions. This you can control. I'm talking about the way you go through the funeral. This you must control. I remember, uh, I think I told you, there was an old lady who died, and the three daughters were there, and, and the wailing and the screaming was so loud, one actually fainted. Now, that was ridiculous. That is not a Christian funeral. Where does it come from? 
because we have been infiltrated by the culture of the world and we fear death. That's where it comes from. But you hear St. John Chrysostom talking in the 3rd or 4th century about how we look at death. You understand? Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done in this area, in this arena, because we miss the point. Yeah? All right. Now, Joseph and his brothers. <laughs> okay, so the, the brothers realize Jacob is dead. Their old fears come back. And what do they do? They lie. So, notice. They sent a message. They didn't dare go see him themselves. They're so afraid. So they send a messenger. And then the messenger says this. Your father gave this command before he died. Notice. Not our father. Your father. Sin always has this tendency of pointing fingers to the others. Anytime you have this tendency of saying, oh, it's him, or it's them, or it's they, or without having taken the time to exercise the virtue of prudence, which means you ponder things in your heart and make sure that what you're saying is objective. I'm not saying that you cannot say, he did it. You have to. Justice demands it. But if you don't ponder those things, if it's a knee-jerk reaction, right, then it's really expression of vice. You're being hasty. You're being unjust. You're being imprudent. Hmm? Then it's vanity and it's, it's pride and it's guile and a bunch of other things. Your father commanded. Jo, jo, Jacob never commanded. Jo, Jacob didn't even know about any of that. But they're so afraid that they're willing to lie. Your father commanded. It's so childish. Before he died, say to Joseph, forgive, I pray you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now we pray you, forgive the transgression of the servants of the God, uh, of the servants of the God, uh, they did evil to you. Uh, no, of, of the servants of, the, of uh, the God of your father. So, they don't speak of themselves as his brothers, they speak of themselves as a servant. And fundamentally, if you want to know the difference between Islam and Christianity, it is this. To Muslims... God, they worship the same God. They don't know him as a trinity, but it's the same God. Right? Jews, Christians, and Muslims worship the same God. The Jews and the Muslims don't know him. Only we do because he has revealed him, himself to us through his son. Right? The, the trinity, the revelation of the trinity is not something a human mind can come up with. We could not have known that. God was gracious enough to reveal himself to us. To the Muslims... God is a master to be feared. There is no way on earth that God could be our father. That is a complete heresy to Islam. Now, they can use the word as a metaphor to talk about the kindness of God, his mercy. But fundamentally, God is a master. We are his servants. There is no relationship of kin. To them, that's utter heresy. All right? And they are now behaving this way. We are your servants, they say. So, and you notice what happened is that um, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. 
They only have a relationship of servitude to him because of the, uh, their conscience that is bothering them, right? And they are yet not able to accept forgiveness. Forgiveness is given, but forgiveness must be accepted. And it's really hard. And they have not been able to do that. But to Joseph, notice, he's already way past all of this. Way past all of this. Fear not, and he says, for am I in the place of God. He completely understands. Justice is not for him to give. It is for God. He bestows mercy. And so it is today with the church. So in that regard, he is a representation of the church. The church's ministry is that of mercy, not of justice. And that's why a lot of people would say, well, the Pope should, you know, smack these people on the back of their heads and do this and that. They either think of the Pope as a CEO of a company or some sort of a dispenser of, you know, utter justice. And that's because of their own haste. But the ministry that they're given to the church is that of mercy. Justice belongs to the Lord. And He dispenses it according to His will. That's why the church canonizes people in heaven, but the church does not canonize people in hell. Being canonized means what? Being part of the canon. The list, the names, the book. Right? There is another book for, for the other destination too. But the church has no prerogative, no authority over it. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. He recognizes the truth. They meant evil. But God meant it for good. Notice, the same action that came from them and was intended for evil. The same action turned to good. And that's what St. Paul will echo. For everything will turn to good for those who love God. For those who love God. Padre Pio said it differently. Pray, hope, and don't worry. Exactly the same thing. Everything will turn to good if you love God. Pray, hope, and don't worry. Right? If you really love God, pray, hope, and don't worry. Everything will turn to good. This is what, this is what the, the, the Scripture says. Now, you may not see it. You may have no clue how it's going to happen. But if you have a child who's three years old and who is trying to understand how... 7 times 7 is 49. Do you think that the fact that he can't wrap his head around it makes it less true? All right. So now tell me, what's 49 times 49? Can you tell me that? So what's the difference between you and a child that is 3 years old? For you to decide that because you don't understand how good is going to come, that it will not come. See how childish we are? In our attitude? It's fundamentally pride and hidden vanity. Because unless I can measure the goodness of something, it cannot be good. You see that? Pray, hope, and don't worry. Everything will turn to good for those who love God. Do not fear, I will provide for you, your little ones. He reassured them and he comforted them. Now, verse 22 through 26. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years. Now that is really interesting. 
Why? Because as we said, up to verse 21, we completely understand why they dwelt in Egypt. The famine was to last seven years. So we're still in the middle of this famine. But in verse 22, when he reaches 110, the famine is long gone. It ended. Why did he dwell in Egypt all the way till he was 110 years old? A couple of things to say. First of all, again, St. John Chrysostom, and I'll be done in a couple of minutes, so just bear with me. Don't be apprehensive or anxious, Joseph says. I belong to God, and in imitation of my Lord, I strive to reward with kindness those who are maliciously disposed to me. I belong to God, after all. Then, to show how great is the favor he enjoys from God, Joseph says, You acted against me with evil intent, but God turned everything to good for me. Hence, Paul also said, For those who love God, all things work together for good. All things, he said. What is meant by all things? Opposition and apparent disappointment. Even these things are turned into good, which is exactly what happened with this remarkable man. In fact, what was done by his brothers had the particular effect of bringing him the kingship. Thanks to the creative God, to, to the cre, uh, to the creative, to God's creative wisdom, transforming all their wickedness into good. So he essentially ruled for at least sixty or seventy years in Egypt. He may have suffered maybe for fifteen. And he ruled for three or four times that duration. It's a symbol of the length of the sufferings you will undergo on this, in this life compared with the length of your enjoyment in heaven. Hmm? By the way, you said the brothers lived that long. Let me actually uh, deal with this on one, one angle. When he, said, when he said to his brothers, it does not mean his his uh, blood brothers because they were older than he and they were not as blessed so the 110 is the Egyptian blessing as far as the Egyptians are concerned if you live to 110 you're absolutely blessed in the, in, the, uh, in the Jewish conception of the world it's 120 Moses lived to be 120 no one else did so he was really blessed this is what this indicates but his brothers doesn't necessarily indicate his own brothers it means the wider word that we use when we say brothers all his people, all the kin, all the member of the tribes. Because those, uh, his brothers could not have buried him. They probably passed away before him. Right. Okay? So, uh, that's one thing I wanted to say. The other I wanted to point out to is the fact that uh, when he, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. So, uh, that is probably indic- indicative that he basically lived to, the fourth, to see the fourth generation. Right? from him, which is always considered to be a blessing. Right? Be able to see the fourth generation. And then the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were born upon Joseph's knees. To be born upon his knees doesn't physically mean they were born on his knees. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an expression to mean that he adopted them. He made them part of the whole family. Therefore, his blessings abide with them. That's what it means. All right? Now, he said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. Before I go there, why therefore did they live so long in Egypt? A couple of reasons. Number one, they really liked it there. That's number one. They really liked it there. And we'll see that in the book of Exodus. Number two, conditions must have changed. Why? Because it doesn't look, look like jo- Joseph can tell them, go tell Pharaoh that you can bury me, just as it did with Jacob. Hence, it seems... That right, even then, 
the, the situation with the Hebrews living there ha, ha, has already changed. They were not as favored as they were before. Because he says, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. It means you can't go out now. So it must have already been done that they were there and they could not just extricate themselves. Partly because they didn't want to and partly because they, they would not let them go. They, have too, they had too much wealth. And he took an oath of the sons of Israel saying, God will visit you and you shall carry up my bones from there. He would have much rather been buried right away, but he couldn't. But his bones they will carry with him. And so he was then embalmed and was put in a coffin in Egypt. Coffins are very Egyptian. They're not Israelites. Israelites don't use coffins. And, you know, we've turned this into an extravaganza. You know, with the price of one coffin here, we can feed a whole family in Africa for, you know, four or five years. Which is ridiculous. If you think about it. So, this actually closes Genesis and prepares for the opening of Exodus. So, going back now on a key salient point of Genesis. Number one, the creation. God saw that it was all good. We went through all of this. We talked about the scientific aspect of Genesis. We talked about how creationism is dead wrong. And if you're a Catholic, you can't be creationist. Right? We talked about we shouldn't be afraid of the science and, and, and that evolution, when we take it apart from its philosophical aspect that tends to be atheistic, in itself actually uh, is very compatible with the Catholic faith. Because in our own life, we are evolving you know it spiritually. We grow by fits and, and, and bounds, and we move three steps forward and two steps back, and we fall, we get up, and we end up in dead ends, and we continue. And God is leading us through the whole thing. And likewise, the mystery of the entire creation seems to be progressing along the same pace. Right? We talked about what it, was, what it meant for Adam and Eve to be together, the, the mystery of marriage, the mystery of the original man, being in the garden with his wife. They knew no shame. Then we talked about the fall, and we said one of the key angles of Genesis has consistently been the fall of the firstborn. And remember, when I say the firstborn, I don't mean that the secondborn was any better. The point is that the firstborn, who's supposed to be the one who takes on all the responsibility and lead others, fail. He fell. He fell. Well, he's not able to do it. Just losing my English now. He couldn't, couldn't do it over and over and over again. What is the fundamental message of, of Genesis? It's a negative message as far as humanity is concerned. You, we don't have what it takes. And it's also a positive message. Despite this repeated failure, what is God doing? Constantly coming back and saying, get up. I'm with you. Get up. Try again. I'm not giving up on you. Get up. You can do it. It's a message of hope, of encouragement. The abiding presence of God. So in a positive sense, in reading Genesis, you tru truly come to understand the working of the Holy Spirit. Because the book of Genesis, apart from these theophanies, when God appears and God speaks, most often than not, it is the providence of God, the Holy Spirit, working mysteriously, silently, in the background, to turn all things to good for those who love God. 
and nowhere else do we see it better than in the life of this amazing man, this great saint of the Old Testament, Joseph, who truly was taken from being this vain brat to become a saint through a number of hardships that all turned to good. And in him, we hope to see a reflection of our own lives. And so as we close this study, my prayer to you is that you become a Joseph in your life to others and that you guide others and that your sufferings and difficulties and pains that are given you, you can receive the grace to see them as gifts, as gifts by God who will use you to reach others and who is inviting you today to the great wedding of the Lamb in heaven. Because at the end of the day, we want to go home. And this, the book of Genesis, is a roadmap. It's a guide. It's an example set before us. And as you meditate on it, I hope that you will continuously go back to this book in your own prayer and read passages from it. And then see yourself reflected in it. And that pray that God will constantly lead you as He led them through the working of the Holy Spirit today and the communion of the saints until you reach one day heaven where you can go and sit next to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and get the story from them. That bless you. All right. Questions? Yes. Uh, cremation... My understanding of it, and I, I, I admit I have not looked at the canon or what they've changed. If you guys know, you can please uh, chime in. My understanding currently of cremation is that as long as it's interred, you have the urn and you bury it properly. And uh, you then, um, um, you know, honor uh, the, the place where they're, and it's an honorable place. The church is fine with that. What the church doesn't want to see is, you know, urns being floated here and there, put in a decorative place, and some, that's not acceptable. Uh, the, it is always preferred, I mean, um, uh, burial is preferred over uh, um, cremation, as far as I know. I don't know if now they've changed that. My understanding is that uh, to, to, um, to bury the dead is more uh, honorable than it is to cremate them. But at the end of the day, as long as they are put interred in the ground, that is going to be acceptable to the church. But again, you need to check that thing because, I, as I said, my, my knowledge here is kind of a little bit rusty. No, 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 no. No spreading of ashes anywhere. It, it isn't because there is um, something special about the earth, right? M make sure you understand the rationale behind what the church is doing. The church honors the body because it's the creation of God. And what the church wants is for us to do something that honors uh, the creation of God. If you take ashes of someone who died, especially a baptized person, therefore someone who was part of the temple of God, and you go and you spray them over whatever, and they fall on, you know, bird's poop and what have you, you are not honoring God's creation, especially the second creation. That's why the church doesn't want to do any of that stuff. You understand? It, it's not about, we're not, we don't want to become superstitious, it's, you know, something about the earth. No, no. We bury them in the earth and we put a tomb or something to remember where they are so we can honor them because God honored them. He paid the price on the cross for them. You understand? Did I answer your question? 
So denial of the faith, as long as it doesn't demonstrate denial of the faith and resurrection in the body. So when we do those things, that's the other reason why we honor the body, because we, like the Egyptians, believe that the, the body will, will, uh, will rise. Yeah. Yes. Well, state of grace is something we have to be very careful, because um, in order to be in state of grace, you have to be baptized. Right? So Abraham was not baptized. So we understand that God, through his, uh, Jesus, through his death and resurrection on the cross, effectively saved all the patriarchs of the Old Testament. But the primary reason why he chose them is because of the fact that as the lines of the families went down, the firstborn would not do what he wanted, and he had to go to the second, sometimes to the third. And so it fell down through the genealogies on Eber, and through him, Abraham, and then Jacob, etc. And these were men who strove to do his will. Fundamentally, that's really why he chose this, this uh, whole lineage, because they did his will. They were the ones who, in the natural order, were the first to say, I will do your will, O Lord. Yes, but they were not in the lineage. You see, lineage is very important. So that's why genealogies, the, the, the book of Genesis is called the book of genealogies. Because it starts from Adam and through his line, through Seth, and then down to Noah. And it's always that line that is followed. It doesn't mean that outside this line, you only had wicked people. There may have been people that led, lived a, a life that was even more saintly than any of them. So, for instance, in the Gospels, this is demonstrated to us. Right? Who are the two people who were praised by Jesus for their faith? The centurion and the Syrophoenician woman. Pardon? St. Luke was non-Jewish. Yes, he was Greek. Yes. Yes. But my point was that who was really praised in, in words by Jesus? The centurion and that Syrophoenician woman. Woman, how great is your faith? No one else got that. And the centurion. In all of Israel, I haven't seen a faith like this. He didn't mean that in all of Israel there weren't people who had a deep faith, because otherwise he would be saying that the centurion had a faith deeper than that of his mother, which obviously is impossible, or that of St. Joseph, right? But he meant that the faith of this man who understood what the structure of the church is all about was something that, generally speaking, Israelites completely missed. Right? But how come these two were able to see this? Because of the working of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works through all men. So again, the point is Genesis is not an elitist book. It's not a book about the elite. That's not the point. The point is it's a book about a family and all the problems that happen in the family and how God never ceases to guide the family despite all of this. It doesn't mean that these were the only or the greatest men of faith. It means these are in the covenant who were who received the covenant and transmitted it to their descendants faithfully, despite the many problems they had. Yeah? Yes, exactly. The, very good point. The, the problem with us is that we only function with a limited understanding of what justice is. And it's only limited by what we know, and it's hampered by what we don't know. And that's why God's mystery, God's justice is always a mystery to us. And I pointed out to you many times, and it's worth remembering, that even when you're in heaven, if some of your relatives, brothers or sisters or parents or siblings, are not in heaven, and you'll know that one day, because sufficient time will have passed for you to figure out they're dead and not here. 
and are not in purgatory, so they're in hell. And how could you be happy in heaven if some of those whom you love here end up in hell? See how we struggle with this. It's a puzzlement to us. Hmm? But if you think about it, if you, would you agree with me that in heaven you're going to be happy? Yeah? Can we hold on to this thought and not let go of it? Okay. We, can we take that as a premise? You are going to be happy in heaven. We don't question that? Everybody on the same page? Okay. Now, would you also agree that there is a very high probability that some of your family members, the people you know, you care about, are going to be in hell? Yes? All right. Would you also agree that you're going to know that and yet be happy? Yeah? Yes? Can you, can you still go with me that, that far? You're going to know that and yet be happy. Because we already said as a premise, you're going to be happy. Correct. Now we're getting to it. The selfishness is very interesting, right? So, so how, how do we bridge this? How is it possible in heaven to know that and yet be happy? Okay. Let me, give you, let me illustrate that for you. Suppose you had made a cake. And suppose that cake was in the fridge and you told your kids, don't touch the cake. All right? And you come home and you open the fridge and half of the cake is gone. And you can retrace the footsteps because of the chocolate on the ground back to the culprit who did the deed. Would you be happy that half of the cake is gone? No. No. You are unhappy. You may be very much unhappy, right? Okay. Now, let's assume you talk to this kid and he tells you there's this woman who knocked at the door and she had two kids with her and they had nowhere to live and they had nothing. So I gave her half of our cake. How would you feel about that? How come that same thing, the same action... Nothing's changed. Did anything change? Was the cake restored? No. The smudges of chocolate are still on the ground. How come are you happy now? That's how in heaven you're going to be happy when you discover what? God's justice. It is God's justice that will make you happy. And the more you reflect on this now, the more you spend time taking this difficulty, it's difficult, right? You'd be like Jacob wrestling with the angel. This is what it meant for him to wrestle with the angel. You're taking a difficult idea, a difficult concept, and you're wrestling with it. Lord, how can I be happy if I know that my mother is in hell? Take that into prayer and let him guide you through this. And I tell you, right now, here on earth, you will receive peace. You will. Right? Yes. Very good question. What are we saying? St. John Chrysostom answered this one, actually. Here's what he said. Why did Jacob ask them to carry my bones up there? I mean, carry me up there and bury me there. Why did he ask them that? He's buried with his kindred. Yes, but that's really not the primary reason. All right, remember, in order to be buried somewhere, you have to what? You have to own that place. It's an act of faith in saying, God will give you this land. You're burying me in my land. So there was a mission associated with his burial. Therefore, he could do that. In most of our cases, we're not there. Right? Nobody says, go bury me back in my hometown because I'm going to own it one day. Right? That's why St. John Chrysostom was saying, okay, it made, sense for, it made perfect sense for him. It makes absolutely no sense for us. 
It's an act of vanity, and we're spending a ton of money for nothing. Because the dirt here is just as good as the dirt over there. Yes. Ah, very good question. They were fasting, and now we actually have a feast. Does that make sense? Why? After the resurrection. It's a celebration. Right? Now remember, celebration doesn't mean, I'm singing and I'm really... No, that, that, that's not the point. Right? It's supposed to be a celebration of hope. The, the, the virtue of hope is what we are celebrating. Right? That's what we're celebrating. We're saying, Lord, I believe in you. And we now are sitting here together eating this meal, and we call it in the Maronite Church, the meal of mercy. The mercy meal. We're celebrating your mercy. See, we say those things, but we don't understand anymore what it means. Right? We just, well. But that's, what that, that's the point of that meal. So it's not a meal where, you know, you know let's rock and roll and dance and as some others do. This is not at all the point. It's supposed to be a meal where we express our hope in God's mercy. That's, that's what it means. Yeah? Yes. The, the reasoning for all these appointed dates is that the church, knowing our weaknesses, is trying to help us to make sure we're not forgetting the dead. They're, they're, essentially, the 40 comes from the, the Jewish tradition. Because the mourning period was 40 days. Okay? There, there is no... The 70 days is because of 40 days. Okay. So it gets a little complicated with numbers. And it, really the point is not the numbers. But to answer your question, 40 days of, um, of uh, embalming and then 30 days of actual mourning. Right? So I said 40. I apologize. I meant 30. 30 was the traditional thing in the, among the Hebrews and other ancient to mourn for somebody. 30 days, and 40 for the embalming. But I don't want you to focus on the numbers because that would be the wrong thing. The point is don't forget the dead. They need your prayers. And don't just wait for the yearly anniversary to pray for them. Pray for the dead. In fact, the fathers of the church will tell you this, and it will sound strange to your ears, that praying for the faithful departed is more meritorious than praying for the living. Praying for the faithful departed is more meritorious than praying. Why? Well, it's really easy. Well, they need your prayers and what else? Well, no, no. Pardon? No, it's not they can't pray back. Yeah, but there's something else, something more fundamental. Okay, it's a promise of heaven. Yes, but fundamentally, if you pray for somebody who's living... You might be praying for somebody who's damned to hell. And your prayer has no effect whatsoever. Well, when you pray to those who are in purgatory, you're praying for, the, for those who are going to go to heaven. So your prayer is meritorious, meaning it bears fruit. You understand? I absolutely, I follow you. So let me, let me say back, what you, if you just can give me a second. Let me repeat what you said. This is an important point. When you pray for, the, let's say, uh, my mom passed away. So I don't know where she is. God has not revealed that to me. I pray for the repose of her soul. So let's assume she's not in purgatory. What happens to my prayer? It goes back into the treasury of the church to be distributed for all those who need it. 
Right? And, and the, the point that John is making right now is that if you pray for someone who's alive and that prayer is not fruitful, it is not clear, and I, I don't know what the answer is, it's a very good point, that that also will get distributed. Although I would, if I were to, cho- to, to choose, I would say yes, because every prayer is, is really the workings of the grace of the Holy Spirit in the world. And the working of the Holy Spirit is never, never unfruitful. It's always fruitful. So my sense is that even for those who are alive, if that prayer is not received, it will either come back to you or someone else. How do we know that? The talents. Now that I think about it, the talents, right? The three guys with the talents. So one had five, one had three, one had one. The five came back with another five. The three came back with another three. The one who had one buried it, did nothing. Therefore, in his case, he took the grace that he received and buried it, meaning it didn't, he didn't allow it to bear fruit. But what did Jesus say? Take that from him and give it to the one who has five, so it may bear fruit. Because the work of God always bears fruit. All right? Hold on a second. Yes, you had a point. Yes, there are prayers that are more important, obviously the Mass. Right? So even a Mass, you can offer your intention of the Mass for the poor souls in purgatory. We should always pray for them, include them in the intention of the Mass. Um, one uh, habit that many... Pardon? Yes, yeah, yeah. so then... Yeah, if you just can give me one quick second, and we'll come back to the prayer of St. Gertrude. The, uh, the thing I wanted to say is that in a habitually, habitually, for instance, many of us, when we pray before meals, always add, and may the souls of the faithful departed, through the mercy of God, rest in peace. It's a habitual prayer. Never to forget those who are in purgatory. Then the rosary. Always include those who are in specifically those who are in purgatory for whom there is no one to pray who are completely forgotten pray for them well you know it's really interesting um, the question of whether they can participate or not saint um saint um uh, um no padre pio padre pio used to say that in his mass there were more pre- people from purgatory than people present he would see them yes I don't know if he heard them. He didn't say anything about hearing. I don't know. Obviously, they cannot participate like you and I can. Don Bosco too? Yeah. Because they cannot receive the Eucharist. So their participation is limited. So I don't know if they can really participate. Right? I think they are present. And they can see. They can assist. But not as participants like you and me can. They can join their prayers right, for us. But they can't pray for themselves. They can offer petition on our behalf. There's a lot of things they cannot do, so their participation would be limited. And it's solely dependent on us. Our prayers are what help them. They can't pray for themselves. Yeah? Yeah. So that, that's actually gets us into prayers of intentions. And there is, uh, it, prayers of intentions are important, but do, do realize that the prayers of intentions are the lesser form of prayers. They're the lesser form. So in your personal prayer, the prayer of intention in the Mass are absolutely necessary. They're central and they're critical and they're crucial because we're presenting all our petitions to God but in, in, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who himself petitioned the Father in John chapter 18. But it's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about at home, if you're sitting down, and if your prayer is only prayer peti- of, of, of petition, and you're spending like 15 minutes, 20 minutes, going through your laundry list of everybody you want to pray for, that's the lesser form of prayer. You'd be much more fruitful for you to do what Mary did in the Gospel. Mary sat at the foot of, of Jesus and said nothing. She did not speak. 
She didn't ask for a thing. And Jesus said to her sister, Martha, Martha, you're busy with many things. That would be the prayer of petition. You're busy with many things. Only one thing is needed. One, not the first, not the primary, not the most important. One thing is needed. Mary has chosen the better place. It will not be taken from her. The point that Jesus is trying to draw our attention to is that in the prayer of petition, you run the risk always of using him as Santa Claus. You're presenting your needs. Whereas in the contemplative prayer, you are united to him in the union of love. Okay, let me put it to you this way. You, uh, to keep the image the way it is, wife and husband get together at um, a restaurant on a date. And wife takes her booklet, opens it up, and starts with her list of petitions for her husband. Do this, we need to do that, check. What about this? You should do this. What about that? The whole evening went by talking about what she wants him to do. Couple number two, husband and wife get together. And what they're sharing between the two of them is the love they have. Which of the two you think is more fruitful? That's what I'm talking about. I'm not saying it's not important to have petitions in your prayers, but do realize it tends to be the less of the two. And for those of you who would need to understand this a little bit better, I truly recommend that you read True Consecration to Our Lady by St. Louis de Montfort. Because total consecration to Our Lady, thank you, by St. Louis de Montfort, because in this consecration, St. Louis is absolutely adamant that when you are consecrated to Mary you do not pray for anything but her intentions. You you gave up the free will of choosing who you're praying for. And you give her all that, and you only pray for her intentions. Because he adds, her intentions are far more uh, um, wise, accurate, and reflect the most important need. They are not. They are altrui- altruistic, because they're not connected to something that she gains. And they are truly Christian because y- y- her prayers are for all the children of her son, whereas ours tend to be for the people we know. So it's a much more perfect prayer when you rely on her intentions and not on your own. So that's all I'll say about intentions. But understand when you're sitting in prayer. Your goal is to love Jesus, not tell him what you want. That comes after. Yes. Very good point. Can we change the predestination? Well, what I will tell, say back to you is that if this person is actually predestined to heaven, it may be just because of your prayers and it's part of God's will. You see, whatever you do, I can make it back part of God's will. No, there's no way you can change predestination. You cannot. There's no change. God doesn't change. No, no. That would, be, that would imply that God had plan A first, and then they said, okay, I'll go with plan B. That's an imperfection in God. God knows everything, and God does not change. He never changes. So he already knew you would be praying for this person, and that's part of the equation. You're not listening to what I'm saying. Everything you're talking about, God foresaw, and it's part of his plan. 
and the final outcome takes all that into consideration. There is nothing we can do to change God's mind because God cannot change. You see, if God could change, it would mean that either the previous state in which God was has a greater degree of perfection of knowledge than the current state, or the current state in which God is has a greater degree of perfection of knowledge than the previous state, which imply in both cases that God is not perfect. Okay, what I'm trying to explain to you is that from our perspective, it looks like there is a plan B. You see, there are two perspectives. There is a perspective of the human mind. And in that case, even in Scripture, God will say, okay, and God recanted. And God said, I was going to do this evil, and I'm not going to. Right? This is a language that makes sense to us human. All right? From our perspective, it looks like God changes. But from God's perspective, who is completely eternal, outside of time, past, present, and future are the same one moment before him. He is unchangeable, unmovable. Always the same. Hence, those changes are already foreseen by him before even he created the world. The fact that you're going to pray for that person was already known to him, even before he created the world. Because if before he created the world, he didn't know that you're going to pray for this person until you prayed, it meant that God was not perfect in knowledge, which is impossible. And your will and my will is part of the equation that was known before the creation of the world. So what I will say this, we were all destined to heaven. God never created an individual and put a stamp on his soul saying, you're going to go to hell. God never did that. Right? Number two, everybody receives all the graces they need to be saved. God is not skimping. Everybody receives all the graces needed to be saved. Okay? Why? Because he, his son died on the cross. You think he, wouldn't, he would not want to give everybody that gift? Of course he would, right? Okay, and number three, and the most important thing, is that the exercise of the free will is an absolute truth. It is not, it is not an illusion of truth. God gave us free will, and that is absolutely true. And through that free will, when we unite our sufferings to Christ, we can save many, and that is absolutely true. All right? On the other hand, it is also absolutely true that those who will end up in heaven were known before the creation of the world, because as I said, God knows everything. So there is predestination in that sense. But, and we can't seem to be able to reconcile the two. We haven't been successful at that yet. It is really bound, wound into the whole mystery of grace. We haven't been able to do that. But I will say this. That part, from a practical standpoint, does not matter. Does it matter? Does it take or add anything to what God gave us? The predestination bit. Does it take away from the fact you can exercise your free will? No. Does it take away from the fact that you can avail yourself of all the sacraments? No. Does it take anything from the fact that you can... Save others through your prayers? No. So, for all intents and purposes, don't worry about it. Just focus on what you know, what you can do. And that is very meritorious. Make sense? Okay. Yes. Absolutely you can please God. Absolutely. Because, remember, God is love. And God is limitless love. Therefore, there is always ever new love in God. Hence, 
what you do truly and authentically and absolutely pleases God. Yes. Oh, okay. It makes sense in the sense that um, it, maybe what they were trying to say is that God's, you don't have to please God so that God, yeah, I, I, I can see what they're trying to say. You don't have a servile attitude and thinking, okay, I have to please God, and then when I please God, God will love me. No. So the, the, the fundamental principle here is that God's love is an absolutely undeserved free gift given to us regardless of what we do. He doesn't give us His love because we pleased Him. Oh, yes. God does not have emotion. That is absolutely true. God does not have, as God, now as God, man is a different story. Christ cried for Lazarus, remember? Yeah. As God, He doesn't experience emotions the way we do. But what are emotions? Emotions are the body's way of expressing a truth. Joy is not a pure emotion. Joy is a state of reason. It's the communion of reason with the truth. Yeah? Hence, the angels who don't have emotions express joy. Absolutely. Our problem is that we reduce these wonderful state of being to emotions. Love is not an emotion. The body expresses love through emotion. That's beautiful. But it's only one aspect of love. Love is much greater than that. Why? Because love is God. God is love. Much greater than an emotion that I feel in my body. Yeah? So our problem is we tend to reduce these state of being that we're going to be in to emotions. We will express emotions in our body. But God has no need for this. But His expression of these state of mind or, 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 or being are much deeper than ours. Make sense? So it doesn't mean that God is cold. Or God has no way of expressing joy or love or uh, um, happiness. Not at all. Make sense? Yeah? Somebody had a, you, you had a question, right? Yes, this is a beautiful way of looking at it. Feeling like a demigod. Yeah. So, one way of, of uh, sort of saying, what, I think this is a very good point. One way of saying it is what uh, both St. Augustine and St. Ignatius said. St. Augustine, pray as if everything depended on God. So, surrender to God. Work as if everything depended on you. Use your free will. That's St. Augustine. St. Ignatius took this and he said, pray, and I'm not going to tell you why, I want you to ponder this. Pray as if everything depended on you. Work as if everything depended on God. I mean harder but easier. Paradox, right? So just ponder this. But his point is absolutely well taken. We know that God knows everything and predestination has happened. But we have to take that and put it side by side with beloved. God is love. Therefore, whatever He does has been done by love. And if we surrender ourselves to love, love will carry us through. Yeah? God bless you. Thank you. 
We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.